growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Is the thing that is the heartbeat of my life, is it enough to bring me purpose and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in my life? Or is it possible that it's really just an escape? Have you ever thought about what is the most important thing in the world to you? Some people would say that it was their family. Others would point to their job as the thing that really gets them going. It could be a sport or a hobby, but whatever it is, it's the heartbeat of your life. But for the follower of Jesus, our heartbeat is something different. What is the heartbeat of your life? We're in church. So everybody already knows what the answer is, right? Just tell him. Just tell him the answer. Feed the monkey the banana so he'll let us go home. It's Christ. Christ is supposed to be the center of our life. There, I said it. Can we go home now? You can. If you don't want anything to change. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're starting a brand new series entitled Heartbeat, and it's based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. As you'll hear Pastor Clay say in just a moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, you already know that our heartbeat should be Christ. Those other things I mentioned a moment ago aren't bad, they're just not enough. As we'll discover in this series, God has much more in store for us. We're glad you've joined us today. Now here's Pastor Clay. Heartbeat. What is what is your heartbeat? What is the one thing in your life above everything else that really grabs your attention? What is the one thing that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is the one thing that kind of gets your motor running and, and just drives you and, and just the thing that is, is the thing? It's the heartbeat of your life. Now, uh, you might be tempted to say, well, there are a lot of important things in my life. I, I'm sure that that's true. But usually, if you look at it and examine it. And by the way, that's what I'm asking you to do today, to do some serious self-introspection of your life. But if if you do that, if you begin to look at your life and get down to the real core value, there's usually one thing in there that's the the heartbeat of your life. Some people would say, well, it's it's my family. It's my kids. Maybe it's my spouse. That, that's, they're, they're what matter to me. They're, they're what's most important to me. They're what I think about all the time. And, and, and they're my life. Okay. But what happens when the kids are grown and move out? Or your spouse disappoints you or walks out? Now, we all know somebody that would say, it's my job. That's my job. That is it for me. It drives me. It is what gets me out of bed in the morning. I am, I'm just obsessed with it. I just want to be the best I can at it. I work hard. I put in long hours, and it's, it's just my job. That's really what it's all about for me, okay? But what happens when the company downsizes or you retire? For some people, it would be a, a hobby, or a sport. And I'm not just talking about a fan. I'm talking about somebody that eats, sleeps, and drinks, breathes NASCAR, or golf, or hunting, or couponing, or, or whatever. 
Now, none of the things that I mentioned, and we could think of a lot more, but none of the things that I mentioned are in themselves bad or wrong. The question is, are they enough? Is the thing that is the heartbeat of my life, is it enough to bring me purpose and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in my life? Or is it possible that it's really just an escape, something that I can, I can put my effort and my energy into and not really have to think about how purposeless or meaningless my life really truly is? Heartbeat. What is the heartbeat of your life? We're in church, so everybody already knows what the answer is, right? Just tell him. Just tell him the answer. Feed the monkey the banana so he'll let us go home. Right? Right? It's Christ. Christ is supposed to be the center of our life. There, I said it. Can we go home now? You can. If you don't want anything to change. But I am of the belief that people that have an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ actually want to have a Christ-centered life. They actually want Jesus Christ to be the heartbeat of their life. So today, we are beginning a brand new series in the New Testament book of Philippians. And I'm very excited about it. Now, some people that have read the book of Philippians would say, well, the book of Philippians is about joy, man. It's all about joy. And joy certainly is a central theme of the book of Philippians. It certainly appears in there a great bit. 16 times, as a matter of fact, in four chapters, 16 times, the Apostle Paul, the writer of the book of Philippians, mentions the idea of theme or happiness, inner joy or happiness. 16 times in four chapters. Joy is an important part of the book of Philippians, but joy isn't the heartbeat of the book of Philippians. The heartbeat of the book of Philippians is Christ. Christ was the heartbeat of Paul's life, and nowhere is that more apparent than in the book of Philippians. 17 times the name of Christ, Jesus, or Jesus Christ are mentioned in the first chapter alone. Now, that works out to a little more than one out of every two verses. The heartbeat of Philippians is Christ. Now, you may be thinking, well... <laughs> Golly gee, Batman, shouldn't you be uh, trying to make this a little more suspenseful? I mean, shouldn't you kind of be stringing us along here, you know, and, and uh, so we're going to want to listen to this and want to be a part of this series? You, you've given us the answer right up front. Listen, I've been trying to give this answer away for 20 years. I've been trying to tell anybody that would listen to me. That Jesus Christ must be the heartbeat of your life. The one thing of your life. If you're going to have the kind of life that he says that you can have. I've been trying to tell anybody that would listen to me. That, that Christ isn't. This idea of, of Christ being the central part of our life. Isn't a religious duty ladies and gentlemen. It's a relational delight. It's, it's not a. It's not a Sunday ritual. It's an everyday reality. Jesus Christ isn't part of my life or even prominent in my life. He's the point of my life. 
That's heartbeat. And that's what we discover, I think, in the book of Philippians. Now, it's important that I give you a little bit of the background as we get into this this morning. Because as I said a moment ago, joy certainly is a prominent theme in the book of Philippians. And that's, that's important because circumstantially, this may have been the lowest point in the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul wrote this book, which was really a letter, originally sent to the church in Philippi. Philippi was a, was a city in, in Macedonia, kind of what's part of ancient or what today would be Turkey, Greece, that area back over in there. It was the first church that Paul established after God gave him the vision to turn west on his missionary journeys. And later that church, the church in Philippi had supported Paul financially to help him spread the message of Jesus. And they were still ministering to him. But this was perhaps the lowest point in Paul's life, circumstantially. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been to the lowest point in your life circumstantially? You say, well, I don't know. I'm still alive. There could be worse coming. <laughs> there could be. But let's think positive. Paul had been in prison in Caesarea for two years without even a trial. He's finally taken to Rome on board a ship. But it gets caught up in a big storm, shipwrecked. He's floating around a night and a day in the deep. Lots of other stuff happened during that process. Fascinating reading, by the way. Um, But the bottom line is they're eventually rescued and he's taken on to Rome, where he has now further been in prison, probably for about another two years. Most of his friends have left him, given up on him. And now, even some of the leaders of the church, even some of the pastors in the area had begun to to turn on Paul. Now, we won't see that for, we'll read about that in a couple more weeks. But the point is, this was probably as low a point as Paul could have experienced circumstantially, and yet his life is running over with joy. So we're going to spend some time in the book of Philippians, seeing if we can figure out what it is about Paul's life that that made Christ, the heartbeat of his life, and how he found this contentment and fulfillment and purpose in his life, even in the midst of what would have been the worst circumstances that any of us could imagine. So, I want to pose this question this morning, then we're going to read the text. Well, now let me read the text first. Can I do that? Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 is what we're reading. If you brought a copy of God's Word, um, if you have it on your phone or iPad or whatever, I encourage you always open. We have it up on the screen as well for your convenience. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Everybody with me today? Say, we're with you. We, we love you. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I'm just trying to. All right, here we go. Here we go. Philippians chapter 1. Heartbeat, folks. Heartbeat. Paul and Timothy bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of 
of your participation in the gospel or because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm asking today, uh, as I always do, that you would uh, allow your word to speak into our hearts and our lives. I believe and, and have claimed the promise of your word for years that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is able to divide soul and spirit, even joint and marrow, as the writer of Hebrews says. In other words, it is able to do in our hearts and lives what needs to be done to surgically cut out of our lives or even to sow into our lives. And as we start today this series in the book of Philippians, my prayer is that you would use me, your messenger boy, to deliver truth that would speak into each of our hearts and our lives about what is and should be our heartbeat. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Based on this opening verse, we'll talk about it just the opening verses, we'll talk about it in just a second. It's, it's easy to see that Paul has a deep affection for this church in Philippi. He he gives them this warm greeting as he does in, in most of his letters when he sends it. And then he adds in verse 6 this, really, this word of encouragement to them. It was a word of encouragement to them, and it has been a word of encouragement to the church, the body of believers down through the ages. Because it speaks of the faithfulness of God. And I, mean, I, know, I know we always need to know that, but, but can I have a witness? Are there not times in our life when we really need to know that God is faithful, that God is there no matter what is going on? And Paul offers that word of encouragement to the church in Philippi. But verse 6 also contains a theological truth about salvation, about what it means to be in a relationship with God. You see, if we're going to talk about Christ being the heartbeat of our life, then we have to make sure that we have the foundation set. And the foundation of that begins with understanding what it means, what it takes to actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be saved and to be redeemed. We use that term a lot in that series in Ruth, to be redeemed from our sin debt. What does actually all of that mean? So I want to pose this question this morning for you. It looks like this. What makes this work so good? In a few moments, we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper, but I, I have to start with this question. What makes this work so good? If Paul says, for he who began a good work in you, okay, what is it that makes this work so good? Let me just remind you, and that's all I'm doing today, folks. I'm just trying to remind you of a couple things. For one thing, what, what, part of what makes this thing so good is that this work is paid for. Paul says, he who began a good work in you. Right from the get-go, Paul begins to remind the people in Philippi that this is a work of God. In other words, this is not about what we have done or what we could do or what... This is about what God has done for us. This is His work. He has accomplished it. 
Now, for some people, that that can be a problem because there's something in us that tends to make us think, I've got to do certain things or act a certain way or, you know, meet these certain expectations. But Paul says, he who began this good work. Paul says, being being certain of this carries this idea of of, uh, assurance uh, to be convinced, to be sure, to be certain, to be persuaded. I know this to be true. There's no question Paul was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant guy. But Paul didn't know everything. He didn't know why he had to go through some of the things he had to go to. He didn't always know that. He didn't always know the purposes or the plans of God. So Paul didn't know everything, but Paul knew this. Paul knew that a person that was in a relationship with God, and I hope, by the way, this morning you're kind of thinking that way. You're asking yourself that question. Okay, relationship with God, do I have that? Am I in a relationship with God? What does that mean? Paul knew that a person who has had his or her sins forgiven and has been adopted into the family of God and forgiven of those sins, Paul knew that that was a work that God had done and not a work that any person had done themselves. Let me just remind you of that through a few pages of God's Word. Look at this passage in Acts chapter 2. Just kind of reminds us of the sovereignty of God. It says, The man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This was in Peter's uh, sermon uh, at Pentecost. And Peter's acknowledging, you got responsibility. You made the decision. You hung him on the cross. But you better understand, this is a work God's been doing from before the foundation of the world. God had already predetermined that his son was going to come and pay the price for our sins. And he was going to pay that price in full. How about this one in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9? Perhaps the quintessential text when we're talking about whether this is a work of God or whether it's a work of man. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of, will you say that word for me? Yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So that no one can take credit. So that no one will someday stand before God and say, hey, hey, ooh, 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 God, remember that time when I helped that old lady across the street? Or remember that time when I gave all that money to the church? Or remember that time when I, I, I never missed Sunday school for like 46 years? Or you remember that time this and that? And God, God says, no, mm-mm. No, that's not what does it. Okay, how about this one? Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, when, when, you, when you were lost, He made you alive together. Who did that? Who? He, Christ, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I like that, don't you? You like that word? All our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. There was the charge of against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way. Who's taken it out of the way? Yeah. Say it again. Who? He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. I don't think y'all are excited enough yet. So let's look at another one. How about this one? Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Who saved us? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, are you kidding me? But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is the work He has done. Come on, real quick. First, first Peter chapter 2. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by 
His wounds you were healed, not by yours. One more, also 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. I know I've got to move on real quickly. Every other, virtually every other religion in the world has at its core a belief that this is about what you have to do in order to earn the favor of that particular God or not earn his wrath, right? Some religions, I mean, their God is just plain downright mean. And if you want to stay out of the the proverbial doghouse with him, you have to do this, 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 and this, and then, you know, maybe he'll let you in. Listen, I'm just telling you, it does... uh, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and and virtually every other one all come down to this idea that that if I want to earn a place with the God of that particular religion, it's what I have to or can do for him. Even Judaism, which professes faith in the one true and Jehovah God, even Judaism comes down to what you have to do and not do in order to earn God's favor. And this isn't about, ladies and gentlemen, what we do for God. This is about what God did for us. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. If you're here thinking, well, how come? I don't know about this Christianity, Jesus stuff. I mean, there's plenty of other religions. Lots of people all over the world believe. Millions of people believe in Islam. Millions of people believe in Buddha. Millions of people believe. How do you know you're right? All I'm telling you is what separates Christianity from virtually every other religion in the world is this is about what God did for us, not about what we're going to do for him. As a matter of fact... Talk with, with, with uh, people who live in other countries or missionaries who go over there. Well, sometimes one of the hardest things they have in trying to convince a person of what Christ has done for them, one of the hardest th- concepts they have to get their mind around is the idea, because, because they've had these ideas of these other gods put into their system their whole lives, and to be suddenly be told, no, this is, this, this is about what God did for you. This is about that God came for you, that God, God paid for you. God died for you, and they just it's hard to get their mind around that. But he did it. This, this is a good work because, ladies and gentlemen, it, it, it's paid. It's paid in full. How, you know, some of y'all might not know this, but come on, we'll just do it. We've got, we got a minute. We can do this. How about we just sing this, sing this chorus? Yeah, yeah, if, if those of you that know this, help out those of us that may not know this. We'll see whether I know it or not. But <laughs> No, come on. Remember this? You remember this one? Jesus paid it all. Know that one? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He paid it, not me. This is a good work because it is paid for. Let's look at another idea. It's a good work because this work is powerful. Paul says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Perfect it means complete it. Okay? Listen to me. He who began a good work in you, it's not you, right? You didn't mean, God did this. He who began a work in you will perfect it or will complete it. So the implication is God's not done with this thing yet. God's not done with the work that he's doing in you yet. Now, listen to me very carefully. Salvation is instantaneous. The moment a person 
acknowledges their own sinfulness, their own inability to save themselves, their need for God, and their belief by faith, because I know we weren't there 2,000 years ago, their belief by faith that Jesus Christ went to a cross as the sinless Son of God and died in my place, took my debt took my shame, took my guilt, took my sin upon himself. And when I come to the place where I I believe that and acknowledge it and appropriate it to my life and ask Christ to forgive me and come into my life, in that moment, in that instant, a person is adopted into the family of God. They are forgiven of their sins because the sin debt is canceled. It's It's not just said, oh, well, never mind. No, it had to be paid for. And it was paid for. So salvation is instantaneous. But that doesn't mean that God is done with us. Because Paul implies that God is still doing a work in us. And ladies and gentlemen, that work is a powerful work. When God's spirit comes to dwell in me, he suddenly begins to change me. From a man of sinfulness to a man of righteousness. From a man who makes his own choices and and own decisions and and lives the way he wants to, to a man who begins to think of what would honor God and what would be best for others in their lives. God does this work. He begins to change us in our lives. So that, listen, here's the deal. It's not just that God paid the penalty for our sins, as great as that is. It's not just that he paid the penalty for our sins, but ladies and gentlemen, he broke the power of sin in our lives so that I don't have to yield. Now, listen to what I'm saying. I don't have to yield to my flesh anymore. Don't get me wrong. I certainly am not perfect. None of us are sinless. But when the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us, when we receive Christ as our Savior, he begins to work in us so that it actually becomes possible to sin less to begin to turn more towards God and His desire and design for our life than ourselves. So that it's no longer, because if in myself, in my own self, I don't know about y'all, well, actually, I do know about (laughs) y'all. Nothing personal, but I do know about y'all because I know what the Word of God says. In our flesh, we will choose to let the fruit of the flesh come out. Anger, greed, covetousness, laziness, lust, Jealousy, envy, bitterness. That's the fruit of my flesh. In myself, that's what will be produced. But this powerful work that God does within me makes it possible for God's Spirit to produce His flesh. Y'all remember this one, don't you? This is one of my favorites. Galatians chapter 5, which says that the fruit of the Spirit is... Would you read it with me, please? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This, this is it. Paul's, in Galatians, he's discussing grace and law and all this kind of stuff. And he basically comes down there. He says, when the Spirit of God dwells within you, here's what's coming, coming out of you. And you don't got to even worry about whether you're keeping the law, not keeping the law, or whatever else. Because love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control is what is coming out of your life now. And that is powerful. That's this work. That God is doing in us. Uh, I read a minute ago Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Look at Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship. It's the work that he did. We already said that. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God's doing this work in me and changed me into 
a person that's going to honor him instead of a person that just wants to please myself. That's powerful. How about this? Philippians 2.13. We'll look at this verse in a, in a few weeks. For it is God who is at work in you. See, he's not, he's not done. He adopted you into his family when you received him as Savior, but he's still at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't it interesting? Chapter 1, it's a good work. And in chapter 2, it's for God's good pleasure that he's doing this. It's for, it's for the good of, of the kingdom of God that this is going on. This powerful work that's happening in our lives. I don't know about you, but I think that's good news. I think that's a good work that would change me like that. God's not done with me. He's not done with you. It's still a work that's ongoing in our lives. As I said, we don't always get it right, but God's working. If the Spirit of God dwells within you, God's working. Real quickly, let me give you one more. What makes this work so good? This work is permanent. Paul says, he who began a good work in you, he said, I'm confident in this very thing. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, complete it, complete it. Do I need to say it again? Until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is a reference to the return of Christ. A lot of times, Scripture, the day of Christ Jesus is talking about the return of Christ when he comes back and he establishes his kingdom on earth. So, Paul says, this work that God has done in you and this work that God is doing in you, God is going to continue to do until the very end, permanent. Now, I know that some of you, perhaps, and, and maybe, maybe even... I don't, some of you come out of a background where you, you were taught that salvation was not something that was permanent, that salvation could be lost. You could lose your salvation. And I know that some of you struggle in that area, with, struggle with the idea of whether salvation can actually be permanent or not. By the way, this is what is sometimes referred to as the eternal security of the believer. You ever heard that term? The eternal, none of you, the eternal security of the believer. Or, you've heard of this one maybe. Some people refer to it as once saved, always saved. Who's heard, heard that one? Once saved, always saved. Yeah, just the idea that, that once I'm adopted into the family of God, once I'm born again, that I can never be unborn. It's permanent. Now, let me just say this uh, about this idea that some people say that, no, you, you can lose your salvation. Let me, let me just say this first, okay? And it's okay if you don't agree with me about this. It's okay. Just... All right, but what a miserable way to go through life, never knowing, oh, how did I do it? Did I sin too much today? Did I fall from grace today? How much is too much? How do I know if I've got it? How do I know if I've lost it? Do I lose it if I lie too much or if I gossip too much? Do I, do I lose it if I, if I uh, uh, covet too much? Or at what point do I lose it? How do I know if I've lost it? How big a sin do I have to commit to get it? How do I get it back? What a miserable way to live life in fear and uncertainty and doubt, never knowing. Listen, I'm I'm just telling you folks, grace is better than that. Grace is is just better than that. Now second, let me also say that if I had a part in my salvation... If this was somehow that a work also that I'm doing or I'm involved with Jesus in it or somehow if this is a work that I'm doing, then I could understand how I could lose it. In other words, if I, if I, can, if I can do good things or do good deeds or be a good person enough to earn salvation, then it makes sense to me that I could unearn my salvation by doing bad things. 
But we've already established the fact, ladies and gentlemen, that I had absolutely, you had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation at all. It is the free gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. Now, this is about the work that God did. Third, let me say this. If you can lose your salvation, then God's got to get on the ball and change the name of this stuff from eternal, secure, from eternal life to something else because it's not eternal if you can lose it. It's almost eternal life. It's temporary eternal life. I don't know. It's, but it's not eternal if I can lose it. And then finally, let me just say this about that. If it's true that you can lose your salvation, you can fall from grace, then Philippians 1.6 and numerous other passages of Scripture just need to be torn out of the Bible and thrown away because they are a lie if I can fall from grace. No, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be, what? Faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If it's not enough, then Jesus failed at the cross. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus didn't fail at the cross. Jesus triumphed at the cross. I love this verse. And let's look at Romans 8. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Good news. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's permanent, folks. God is faithful. It's not permanent because I'm faithful. It's permanent because God is faithful. Now, let me say this, and then we'll kind of wind this thing up. The fact that it is permanent, the fact that there is eternal security for the believer, is not a license to go out and live my life any way I want to live it. Right? I've had people say that to me. Well, if I, if I believe in that one saved, always saved stuff, I just go out and do anything I want to because it don't matter because I'm saved. Let me just say there is a sense in, in which that is true. If a person is genuinely in a relationship with God, all of their sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. So you could say that yeah, you can go out and do anything you want to. But if a person actually is in a relationship with God, person actually has been redeemed through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, I'll just go ahead and tell you, God changes your want to. He changes your want to. So the things that you might have wanted to do back then, I'm not saying that we're not tempted, I'm not saying we don't have struggles and that we don't have to, you know, make sure that we're standing in, in, in the Lord and putting on the armor of God and all those kind of things. But I'm just telling you from personal experience, as well as the Word of God, that God begins to change us so that the things that used to interest me or the things that I thought, things that, that would feed my flesh, those things God is beginning to take away from me, this work He's doing in me, and so that I don't want to do those things anymore in my life. So it's not a license to just go out. And if, and if you feel that way, if you say, well, I think so, I think I just, I'll just go out and do whatever I want, then I'm just telling you, you need to seriously back up and look at what it genuinely means to be an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. But listen to me, folks, it is a good work. It is a good work. It is a good work because it is paid for and it is paid in full. It is a good work because it is powerful and it is still working in our hearts and our lives. That's what this series is all about. How do I get to that place where he really becomes the heartbeat of my life? And it is permanent, ladies and gentlemen, and it is yours for the asking.
If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, God says, let whosoever will come, come to me. It is an open invitation that is not based on your, your age, it's not based on your skin color, it's not based on your, your, your income. It's based on the fact that God simply chose to love you and me and die for us. And if you, by faith, will respond to God's drawing of you, then you can be redeemed, brought into the family of God and forgiven of your sins. And this good work can be applied to your life. So what do you say? What a great verse to start off with in the series. Philippians 1.6 reminds us that God is the one who has done, is doing, and will finish the work. It's exciting to think that God is still working on me, shaping me more into the image of His Son. But it's equally exciting to remember that there is an end coming to all of this. The day of Christ Jesus will come. And what a day it will be. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross-Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.